Hello and welcome to the Reimagine Everything podcast brought to you by CME. My name is Rani Battikh and I'll be your host for this episode. I'd like to start things off with a quick introduction about CME. So CME is a pretty unique multinational premium tech outsourcing firm with a focus on innovation, creativity and digital transformation. We've been around for a few decades now and we have helped reshape businesses all over the world. So the purpose of this podcast is to really shed light and get expert opinions on some of the latest and greatest advancements in the tech field. Before kicking off this first episode, I'd like to tell the origin story behind this podcast. Uh, when I first joined CME, I would walk around the office and overhear all these wonderful side conversations about technology. So I thought, why not offer these brilliant people that are having small talks a platform where they could uh, share their expertise with a much bigger crowd. And the number one person with the most side conversations around the office happens to be our guest today. He is the design lead at CME, Matthew Musa. Matthew, first of all, thank you very much for being our first guest and helping out with this whole thing. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and um, what exactly do you do at CME? Yeah, thanks for having me, Rani, especially on your pilot. Um, I'm the design lead at CME and uh, I've been the design lead for the last two years. It's been a roller coaster. Many people don't know what a design lead is. So basically I lead a team of about 12 designers that work across multiple clients and we have different types of designers. We have the UX UI designers, we have visual designers, and we have motion designers. All three combined help us create better tech solutions for different clients around the world. That's great, that's great. Thanks again. This brings us to today's topic that you just mentioned actually, that is UX UI. Uh, so, you know, UX UI today, more than ever is considered as an essential asset in developing a new product, whether that product is a software, an, an app, a website, etc. And when I say essential, I mean it is present during every single stage of the development process from start to finish. But before going any further with that, let's get some definitions out of the way. So my first question is probably something that you get like a thousand times per day. Is it UX, UI or UI, UX? Um, I personally get them confused all the time and I'm sure I'm not the only one who does so. So UX, UI or UI, UX? It's UX, UI. If you want to think uh, which one's bigger or scope bigger than the other, it's UX. UX is the discipline. It's the high level discipline of creating experiences. UI is a specific phase in the process of UX. It comes towards the end of the process and it specifically intentionally works on the aesthetics, the visual part of the interface. And it's definitely creative. If you want to be inclusive, just say user experience design, because there are jobs within that discipline that are usually undermined when you say UX UI it's like you're putting UI on the level of UX but we have other roles like user researchers user testers we have copywriters so that's all under UX I'd always try to use user experience design 
but I don't mind people saying UX UI because both of them are ambiguous terms. So just like to make it clear again, user experience design versus user interface design. Those are the two terminologies that are abbreviated into UX UI. You know, when I, when I actually was telling people that we were doing this episode about uh, UX UI, I was calling it UI UX at first. <laughs> so uh, someone actually corrected me and uh, told me that UI is how good the car looks. UX is how good you feel driving it. That's is, true. is that an accurate description? Yeah, it's accurate uh, to an extent. I think it's the dumbed down version of of how, how it could be described easily. Um, so maybe you'd put it this way. It's UI is about how the car looks. Yes, it's the medium in which UX is expressed. So definitely the aim of user experience is to make it emotionally engaging and nice to use. UI is the medium. It's not as simple as you think. It's not just the visual. It's also, can you do the thing you want to do? Is it usable and is it useful? One of the first things that I uh, worked on when I joined CME, an article about design thinking, and we worked together on that. Yeah, I remember that was nice. Yeah, that was very, very nice. Uh, this specific topic seems to be like revolutionary to me. I mean, can you, can you expand on that? What is design thinking and why is it? Is it like the, the latest and hottest topic in the design world? And how really does it affect UX UI? Look, design thinking isn't a new topic and it isn't just exclusive for design in the tech field. Um, I'd say it's been around since the 60s. It was started emerging as a concept in the 60s. It's an innovation methodology. Um, I think uh, it can be separated out of UX UI design, but usually good UXers would know uh, how to employ design thinking while building specific digital solutions. So what is design thinking? It's basically a five-step process that goes from understanding to testing an approach, and it's not a linear process. It was basically conceived uh, for architecture and engineering right after uh, the World War II because innovation started kicking back in. They had more uh, material and expertise on the table and they needed to do something with it to recover from such a terrible uh, war. And uh, later on, like during the 80s, uh, specific uh, other topics started using this methodologies, especially with the rise of tech. So it became more popular because we needed faster solutions to build, build specific uh, frameworks in the 90s. Then we had companies like IDO and then schools like Stanford creating the D school around only design thinking. So there was companies now that you can hire that can come into your uh, specific enterprise and solve problems that uh, need design thinking and then leave. And they can even teach you how to do it in Stanford University. So the types of design thinking problems we tend to solve aren't simple problems, like aren't problems that uh, go through an input and output process. It's basically problems that have uh, multifaceted inputs and that are very complex. We refer to these problems as wicked problems. It's a very interesting topic if you want to look at it. 
I re- I remember using that word in the article. Yeah, it's interesting. The first time I I heard about it, it it triggered me because I started trying to map wicked problems around me. The simplest, most popular wicked problem, I guess, is like climate change. There's a lot that goes into it, like policies, economy, social factors, uh, the popularity of it, and the willingness of people to adopt um, a sustainable mentality. You cannot give this problem to one person and expect the same solution as another person. So design thinking kind of eases up the process to become innovative, to brainstorm, to define a problem, to uh, find the best solutions for a problem. And I just want to say that uh, the more engineers learn about the design thinking process, the more they become curious and they become uh, motivated to build products beyond just the how but also thinking about what goes into building a proper product i think it should be kind of mandatory to know this in tech companies could you like take us through a design thinking process like have you worked on a product recently and used design thinking could you take us through that process yeah sure uh i can actually tell you we're building a new career a management platform in um, our company and we had the luxury of going through the design thinking process this is usually a process that many companies shy away from it takes some time to go through it but uh, with what we're doing in our team is that we're making it not only popular but we're making it acceptable an acceptable part of the process we've seen it success- succeed in other projects and we're applying it to this new career project and what we went through is like uh, every single phase of this methodology starting with research so we met with about uh, 12 to 20 depending on how you quantify the personas we met with users of our old system and tried to understand their problems we didn't judge at all we tried to hear we didn't try to analyze at this phase we tried only to gather so this is what the phase is called understand or empathize then when we had this data, including survey data, we sent a survey that about 200 people responded to from within the organization and some feedback that HR had collected about our initial system. Uh, we triangulate, this is another word we used, we triangulated this data. So three data sources give you a better understanding and validate each other. So we knew this data was actually valid. And then we move to another phase, which is making sense out of the data or defining the actual problems because stakeholders would come to the meeting room and say, look, I know this is the problem with our current system. People don't um, set their missions. They don't set their goals and they're kind of biased to what they see the problems are. But when you start defining it and creating affinity maps and giving a chance to model and find patterns within the gathered quantitative and qualitative feedback, you start seeing uh, specific repetitions emerge, specific problems become well-defined and become often repeated among different people. And those problems become our targets. So once we finished uh, defining the problems, we presented them to management and they were only, uh, before they came, in they only had specific assumptions about what they would solve they left the room uh, with more ambitions and a willingness to ideate so third phase is going through ideation how do i solve these specific problems at hand there are specific techniques we use from brainstorming is the most traditional one 
but brain dumping, we use specific other methods that require working with your hands, creating uh, specific scenarios, or how might we specifically solve specific issues. And then uh, we do some rapid prototypes. So my design team was involved in all the process uh, from research to ideation to prototyping. And then we try to show results as soon as possible, even if they're very low fidelity. We buy in the stakeholders, we get a commitment, and then we start developing the solution. People think everything I said now would take months. Sometimes you can actually shorten it. Depends on how fast you can recruit people, on the size of your team, on the willingness of stakeholders to provide the comfort and the ability to access all these resources. And we were lucky to, to do all this the way we wanted to. And now this platform is being built. We're well into its development and the feedback is amazing. And we started doing some user tests or tests that come at the very end of design thinking uh, process. But you can now go at any point and iterate on the data you had initially and keep improving. You know, what I really like about all of that is that it is centered around actual users. Yeah. Right? True, so, very true. Yes, so, so it's not like big firms or big companies coming up with products that they that they've kind of that they kind of distribute to people and tell them like deal with it yes right it's actually the opposite sure right so when talking about design thinking uh you mentioned that it's it's not new it became hot lately mm. right mm. so uh th the same thing can be said about like ux in general mm. because when when talking about ux people usually associated with like cutting edge apps, right? And, uh, you know, revolutionary interfaces and all. But in fact, UX has been around like for decades. While doing some, some research about the topic, I found an interesting quote from the 1950s uh, that I'd like to read to you and maybe get your opinion on it. So designer Henry Dreyfus, who's renowned for innovating products like uh, the vacuum cleaner, uh, wrote in his book, the book is called Designing for People, and that's from 1955. He wrote, when the point of contact between the product and the people becomes a point of friction, then the designer has failed. When people are made more efficient and happier by contact with the product, that's when the designer has succeeded. If you ask me, that's the very definition of UX. Still very valid, by the way. I can use this definition for to tell my mom what I actually do, because it's, it's kind of <laughs> simplified for the common mortals. Uh, yeah, so it is actually, and I'll go one step further and say that good design is invisible design. I don't need to get good feedback. I just need this person to complete their job the best way possible. If a user has to go out of their way to say something's bad or not usable, or they're uncomfortable because users don't give you pinpointed problems. They don't usually go that deep until they're prompted. They give you their emotional responses. They give you their behavioral cues. You would need to reverse engineer that into tests that can elicit the problems. But I would say I'm frustrated using this car or driving it, therefore. Um, I don't feel comfortable uh, navigating such a website that looks like clumsy to me. They give you feelings, they give you emotions. So if a negative emotion arises, there's definitely a problem with the design. On the flip side, some 
great designs would elicit positive feedback, but that's not a requirement. Because if I see you using the software without nagging, without showing negative feedback, then I understand that I did my job. Some products, they go above and beyond to make this happy factor. Uh, we call it, uh, specifically, we start with thinking into three steps when we're creating such good designs, or three aspects. The behavioral, which is step one at the lowest base of it, and then we think viscerality or visceral, and then we go to memorable. So at base level, behavioral products do what the product should do. So it delivers the value it was there for. Like if I want to drive a car, it should take me from A to B. Then you have the viscerality. Does this specific product uh, elicit a nice kick visual aesthetic response into my mind? So if I use nature colors, like if I use the right green, the right flower colors, I'm used to eliciting a nice response to it, a subconscious positive feedback loop. Then this is a visceral product. And finally, memorable is what um, he was talking about, which is it elicits an experience that goes beyond the product that doesn't stop after its usage. So I just wanted to say this because I think he sums it up really properly. There's much to talk about this topic, of course, uh, but you can look at specific companies that reached high maturity in design, such as like Tesla or Apple, and you notice they don't stop at visceral design. They go as far as getting to memorable. They want you to talk about the positive kick you got out of usage. So another topic that I want to bring up is the graphical user interface, what is known as GUI nowadays. So people started to interact with GUIs back in the 80s with revolutionary devices like Apple's flagship computers like the Lisa, the Mac, alongside with, with uh, some favorites of mine like the Commodore Amiga and the Atari ST. So from that point on, from the mid-80s, I mean, that changed everything, right? I mean, for the first time ever, users could actually interact with a visual presentation instead of a, you know, a, a, a command prompt. So this ushered in a whole new era of UX UI before it was called UX UI. And this brings us to probably a lot of designers' idol, Don Norman, who was the first person to have UX in his job title. Do you think that Don Norman is like a, a pioneer in his field? Definitely. Look, he went out of his way to actually introduce such a need in companies. Okay, so before we jump onto Don Norman, in the 80s, you already started the conversation there, like when Apple, Steve Jobs went to Xerox and saw the potential of the scientific company coming up with some research about ways to use specific uh, computers or screens back then, it was very new to him. And it's like, it was a vision in his mind that, wait, there's far more to using a PC than using it like a traditional machine because you know up until the 90s computers had been around for 50 years uh they used to feed them cards operators used to give them cards they used to spit it out if there was a problem then you'd had dialing interfaces then we reached the command prompt which was black and white i don't think at that at that time now we take it for granted but at that time nobody thought that there was something else on the other side we thought the output was more important than the input so 
how could you take such a, a very highly technical niche and make it popular to the common market? So I think in the beginning, it was more focused on using uh, screens and using a pointer to navigate around the screen. So the mouse was the reason uh, UI is something today. The interaction between moving your hand on a table and targeting specific things on a pixels finally seemed like something you do in your real life. Because now if you want to pick up something from a table, you actually have to move your hand to specific coordinates on the table and pick it up. So it sounded and it felt very familiar to something you've already done since you were young, especially for millennials. Uh, so what happened after that is there was a rising need now to kind of discipline it and fit it into something, a product that you can package and that you can lure people into using. And that's where Don Norman comes in. In the early 90s, he wanted uh, to make products or to position them as easy to understand and easy to use. And it wasn't just him who pushed it in Apple. They gave him the leverage to push it. And he called it human, uh, he called it, sorry, user experience architect. He called the role and he coined the term user experience in general. And he led this unit, which later became a department, which enabled him to become a fellow later on in Apple. Uh, they quickly understood him and the team he assembled that uh, this is the foot into the door of the future. It's making products as easy as possible for your grandma and as interesting as possible to pick up by the youngsters. So GUI came into fashion, if you want to call it fashion, in the late 90s, when, if you remember, uh, there were animations on websites and GIFs and specific uh, whimsical interfaces that represented a revolution. People were having fun with it in the beginning. I think until user experience affected UI, so we started with good, nice and aesthetic and funny user interface uh, and ways to interact with this user interface, like move things on the screen and do it. It wasn't really popular until the bubble burst in the early 2000s and Web 2.0 kicked off and we started seeing social media. We started seeing more complex applications. Uh, then we had the need to carry a phone around and then iPhone came around. So this acceleration in the first 10 years of the th 2000s uh, had to kind of discipline UI to help users because now we had suddenly more functions to do than just reading articles or subscribing to newsletters. So how do I make it easier? And I think UI, which was previously called possibly in the pop culture before web design, mm -hmm. which elicited more of an aesthetic need, became user interface. So that's when actually I started doing legit UI in the late 2000s. And uh, from there on, it caught fi on fire. And today, uh, user interface and UX designers are possibly one of the highest salary jobs in the tech industry because uh, they love us and they can't get rid of us. We get products out of the door. And if anybody's gonna talk about the product, they'll possibly talk about how good or how nice it is to use it. Since you mentioned jobs, you know I'm gonna bring up... Uh, Are we talking um, about Steve Jobs or actually No, jobs? no, no, okay. no, jobs actually <laughs> work. Uh, so you know I was gonna bring up the topic of AI. 
So everybody wants to know how does AI affect this and that? Uh, will I lose my job because of AI? Will I be replaced, etc.? I mean, from a from a UX UI designer perspective, do you perceive generative AI as dangerous? And you know, by dangerous, I mean, would people actually start considering AI as a reliable replacement for designers? Okay, that's a very interesting question. I mean, even I would be worried about how would that impact my job. Um, now, at the moment, AI is a very interesting tool to use to create designs. Previously, we didn't have generative AI. We had stock images, icon sets, whatnot. AI is like helping me do those faster now. I don't think even we reached anywhere near its potential, its full potential. But consider it like your smart friend being next to you the whole time and nudging you towards better stuff to do and giving you specific resources to make it happen. But the designer is not going to be replaced anytime soon. The design mentality requires that you understand a solution or a problem at hand on a holistic level. You need to understand its accessibility, its culture, the real problem it's trying to solve, the real users you're trying to do. Maybe I think you'd need to write three pages before generative AI understands the context of what you're trying to solve and spit out ideas. Till now, maybe you can replace uh, newbies at design with specific tools, but I wouldn't say UX or UI designers should be really worried about the future. We're shifting towards a very interesting uh, outset in tech because previously development was at the center of building interesting products. Why? Let I'll tell you why. It was the most expensive and still is the most expensive. So companies would build and circle all their efforts around engineers to make a successful product. It was hard to find engineers that didn't write bugs into code. It was hard for engineers uh, to test and testing became better. Now, companies are realizing that the real banger for the buck in a company is executing the product design as good as possible. So engineers have taken the, or starting to take the back seat in a product development lifecycle. Their AI tools are becoming as powerful as uh, a senior developer. Like we can get code out of uh, chat GPT or other generative AI that can accelerate the process two or three times faster. I've also um, I've had an experience lately with the solution architect who was using Figma generated AI uh, code. Uh, he caught up to the design process. Like usually where I had two weeks from design and my designer was like, look, I need more time or I need more resources to get the design out of the door because the developers have catched up to me. So what I'm trying to say now is that when developers can do their jobs faster, more reliably, uh, with less effort, then stakeholders will realize that the real star of the show is designing the product in the first place yes. without compromises, right, the creativity that goes into it, the competition I'm, I have to get rid of. And this is the real benefit of AI. It's for the good of everyone, and there will no jobs will disappear. Every job needs to stay there to make it happen. But 
kind of we will pivot towards a future where you need to use your collective brain effort to execute something beyond just popping out simple tasks this maps to everybody in the tech industry and i guess we'll see this happen more often in the five years do i know what's gonna happen after a five-year mark i don't know but i don't think people should be anxious they should be excited may i add another layer to that because i also come from a creative background i'm a writer by trade and i believe that Creativity is a capacity that needs to be constantly trained. So I'm afraid when creative people, whether it's writers, designers, all sorts of creators really, when these people start relying on AI tools solely to get some work done, the power of this creative capacity of theirs will uh, diminish over time. Mm. Uh, everything will quickly look the same then. There won't be any more innovations, no more breakthroughs. Mm. We would have reached a dangerous plateau where creativity is uh, no longer an evolutionary asset. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm so sorry for the very gloomy image, but um, that's why I, be I believe that creative people are the ones that can make themselves indispensable right now mm -hmm. by smartly dealing with AI tools. I think this opens a room for conversation and it's a very interesting point that you set on the table i find that ai is just showing us what creatives or which creators aren't really serious about their craft uh if i'm a creative that's using tools 24 7 maybe i'm a good driver but not really somebody who can innovate so today AI is just repeating what we already know. If I'm a painter, I can possibly put paint on a pendulum and spill it onto a canvas and you get a painting. That's awesome. Am I having fun? No. Is it sellable? Well, wait, I'd argue he might have be, be having fun. Is it sellable? Yes. Is it as interesting to you as somebody who spent drawing on a canvas for two months and you're buying the craft itself? You're buying his patience. You're buying the story behind it, the narrative, right? People love this. We speak in story, we speak in narrative. And it's gonna take us time for AI to catch to that. What I care about today is curiosity. A machine doesn't have the curiosity we have. So use what you do best because it's only gonna get more expensive. So your uniqueness is actually gonna become your strong point, right? So what I would say is you have to find or strike the balance between using AI and keeping your touch, between using AI and activating your creative, the creative parts in your mind. You can marry both. Uh, digital artists today are originally painters, but they expose Procreate on iPad to create awesome images. They will leverage AI maybe to choose better colors, and you cannot find the AI in their craft. If I look at your craft and I see it's all AI, it most likely will be a cookie cutter scenario somebody else is using and it will be less valuable and therefore it will be less unique to the, pro the people paying for such a solution. Your value as a designer in the future will be how different you are tackling problems. That's amazing. You know, whenever someone will ask me about AI replacing them, I'm going to play them that part back. So thank you. 
Okay, so about that, I'll also ask you about what does it take actually to be a, a successful UX UI designer? I mean, when zooming out, successful people in the digital field are nowadays perceived as rock stars, right? They are praised for their achievements and they are often idolized by peers and up and coming generations, especially. So my question is, what does it really take to be a successful UX, UI designer nowadays? I'm, I'm sure like academic qualifications are important and all, but there must be some kind of secret ingredient that makes a UX, UI designer really shine and stand out in a crowd of designers. I'd bug you here a bit. I don't care about academic qualifications. I mean, I got to, <laughs> okay. I got into UX from from a background of a master's degree in computer science. Of course, it did help. I can talk tech language, but you can get into UX UI from psychology. You can get into it from a graphic design perspective, mm -hmm. uh, industrial design. Creativity is far beyond uh, a degree. You know, we're born creative. We're born curious. Uh, as a creative, you possibly even knew you were a creative very early on. You just didn't know how to sharpen the tools. Uh, so there are several traits that might be common with other designers, and there are some traits that will be unique to a UX UI designer. From my experience working with large teams and working with people in the industry, my colleagues and others, I feel that designers are somehow very highly empathetical people. They've been broken in a way or, or another when they were younger. They understand other humans. They're not socially apath. They can pick up on cues. Uh, they understand a problem from people's perspective, which is what uh, user-centered focus is, what user-centered design is. You have to let go of your seat and sit in other people's seats. So empathy fueled by curiosity is definitely the first thing that will get you into the design room. Sometimes people don't have a specific mature amount of empathy, but they can be taught how to think in a user-centered focus approach. It's teachable to some extent. Natural empathy and curiosity, you can spot it from a kilometer away. Then something kind of unique to the UX UI industry, specifically I'd say the UI slice of it, is the ability to shut down your ego. Uh, I'm not saying eliminate your ego or get rid of it, or people don't have ego. I want people to have a specific healthy amount of ego to be on the team. But uh, I think it was a YouTube lead designer that once said, uh, in contrast to interior design and architecture, or car design where like your designs would stay around for years, for a decade, and uh, you'd be proud of them for that entire period, of course. The moment she released a YouTube update on, on design, another team was already starting research for an, uh, even a newer design. Technology is too fast, and trends change a lot in tech. Uh, not to mention that we expect more sophistication. We expect to push this envelope. So if I get too attached to my design work, if I get too attached to the feedback I get on my design work, I'm going to be bound to be upset most of the time. I need to build a product that serves today, that specifically serves the user today, and I should be always and constantly improving it in a cycle and expect change. 
So your adaptability, your ability to shut down your ego, to let go of this baby over time, to allow for input from different people is very important to become a user experience designer. Then I'd have more behavioral traits, like the ability to be your self-critic. Uh, successful designers wake up um, after a long day of work and they look at their designs and say, what the hell was I thinking about yesterday? And they kick it off the board. They're able to uh, joke about themselves, joke about that their work. And finally, with time, if you're a designer that's growing, uh, that's becoming uh, more of a senior person, having a say on the table, you'd go for more negotiation and listening techniques. I think listening has to start early on, but negotiation has to come. We still have a lot to do as UX designers to penetrate markets, especially in the Arab world, because it still feels like it's a privilege to have UX UI in your company when it isn't. It's at the very core of what makes products successful. So to, to wrap it up, you need empathy, you need a diffused ego, you need criticism skills, especially self-criticism skills, and you need to have a great communication pack in your backpack. If you have these, and they're as long as this explanation was, you already are on the track to become successful UX and UI designer. That was really comprehensive. This, this brings us to our final question. After everything, how does the future of UX, UI look to you? Some people believe that there's nothing more to, to be achieved. I mean, in recent years, we've seen everything that uh, UX UI can offer. Is, is that true? Baby on screen. We're going to a UX UI uh, future that's not on screen. Apple Watch 9, for example, just released a way to use your fingers to tap them together to, to get the call open or to set a timer. Uh, and we're moving onto a more of a haptic future with augmented reality, with the Vision Pro becoming more out in the pop culture. We're going to be designing interfaces that are actually closer to what we do as humans naturally. I see it happening maybe down the last decade. Now it's still a gimmick. It feels like a gimmick, but we will transfer into a future that uses holograms or virtual reality to make things happen. This is the ambitious part of why UI is still here to stay. I'd say the growing need for differentiation in the market and the growing need to solve problems. The more we still have problems, the more UI will be needed. I think UX UI will be wrapped in one bigger layer, which is product design. Okay, which is already what you would hear interchangeably with UX UI, uh, which takes care of the business as a whole. It goes through channels beyond the screen. So now if you go to a shop to buy clothes, this retailer might take um, a phone from their pocket and try to check the price on a tag. Okay, UI is basically and the experience of using their phone to find clothes quickly, their prices, their availability in the stock is user interface. A product owner would think beyond that. They would think about the whole process from entering the shop to you leaving from the right. perspective of you to the perspective of that assistant. 
um, they will also take care of what the business needs are as a whole. So UX UI will be wrapped into more disciplines. It will become more popular and it will go far beyond just a screen. And we're all excited to see that. Yes, happen. I can't wait actually. Yeah. So, so for anyone looking to get into UX UI, whether it's a career change or someone uh, like a fresh graduate, so UX UI is here to stay. It's here to stay. That's, that's uh, for sure. Definitely research it, ask us questions if you want to. And you know what? If you don't like it and if you don't find yourself, you'd possibly have learned a few concepts. You can always back off. Yeah. If you feel it's in you, go for it. I personally learned a lot uh, today. So, so Matthew, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful first episode, really. We will definitely have you back for another episode at, at some point in the future. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow us on all our social media platforms to stay up to date with our latest news and our next episode. Until then, stay safe and techie.